So I'm gonna Jordan will kick it to Jordan for the something good. So if you could not have the Rufus song queued up, that'd be great. <laughs> I will not have it queued up. <laughs> and then we'll just do we, that. We thing can try to talk about it. Nice. What is this, amateur hour? Nice intro, Brandon. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Let the Music Be Your Master. Uh, I'm Steve Ricks, and I'm here in the garage with... <laughs> Brandon, is choosing to, one. Brandon is choosing to represent himself with... Metal today <laughs> oh, instead right. of a go. name, as always. But yeah. here, I, here he is, the one and only Brandon nah, Arnold, nah, nah. Master Don. Yeah, whatever. Um, whatever that was. I will get control of the uh, <laughs> the music playlist. Brandon, here. that laptop's out of control. What's happening? We've got some ghosts with us well, today. It's, <laughs> it's out of practice. It has been oh what, like gosh. five weeks since you had COVID and you had COVID and. <laughs> Jordan, have you had COVID yet? I had a COVID scare. Oh, that's <laughs> and right. And, back you, negative. and you gave the scare to me, too. Yeah. Oh, boy. We both... Uh, we hunkered down for a day or two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm post-COVID with the antibodies blaring, so nice. I'm, I'm feeling like Superman. But, but Jason, Lucky I think, is... You. He, who knows? Maybe he has the antibodies because he, he dodged it. Anyway, I'm rambling on, but you guys, come on. Introduce yourselves. Brandon? Hi. Hey, I'm Brandon. <laughs> and I'm Jordan, and I'm admiring, Brandon, your mask. Is that a sushi mask? Yeah, there's sushi You've on it. You've got a sushi, sushi mask. I haven't had sushi for a long time, and I think I'm going to have it tonight because oh. of your mask. Okay. All right. Jason Johnson. <laughs> you know anything uh, else clever to say, Jason, <laughs> about uh, sushi no. masks or COVID? No, or, not yet. Or metal? Yeah, yeah. I'm just saving it You're all for the pot. It. We'll okay. get to it. I'm ready to come out... Um, and just make fun of all your picks. Oh, that's good. that's what I want to do. I want to take the stuff that's personal been, to you, you've been and pent, I, pent I want up. to just, I mean, yeah. <laughs> you've been pent up. Good, good luck uh, getting any of your actual picks played, then. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the garage. You're not here with us, but in spirit, you are. We we feel you. We hope you're well. Hope you're hanging in there. Uh, two two of the four here are post COVID in the house, yeah. but for me for me I actually had it with my sons and my wife didn't get it and she was taking care of us and then Jason yours was like the the opposite of that or yeah my wife had it two of my sons had it and somehow I avoided it I think I'm like uh, Bruce Willis and Unbreakable that's my <laughs> that's my only logical solution he is wearing a poncho today and uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, I haven't shook his hand, but I probably. But by the way, in, in, in all did. seriness, yeah, it, it, it was. Uh, it's not fun. I no. hope everybody's staying safe, and uh, yeah. and it it sucks all the way around. So, uh, but we 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 made it, and we feel for, very fortunate. Yeah, awesome. If you're noticing a bit muffle uh, a muffly sound to our tone, we're all masked up today. We we're we're distanced and masked and trying to keep it safe. It's too too cold to have the garage door open today. It's true. <laughs> it's. It is a cold one. Um, speaking of cold ones, uh, oh. I just, we got a word from our sponsor, uh, <laughs> Highball. 
energy water. No, just kidding. Uh, uh, I think we need to get rolling with this and and get rolling uh, and getting some sponsors. Is what yeah. we need to do. It's about I know, time. I mean, we, we've, got, we've got what like ten what? subscribers. Why would we yeah, want to solely right. the purity of this by corporate sponsorship? Are you we kidding me? We don't. Other, want. other than obviously, this episode is brought to you by soda. <laughs> Carbonated beverages. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear that. What are we doing this week, Steve? You're um, in charge. Well, before we launch into that, uh, I think I got to kick it over to my friend. Can I kick it? Can yes, I can. kick it? Yes, Gordon Shumway. Uh, to our friend Jordan, uh, <laughs> a.k.a. Gordon Shumway, uh, for right. Tell Me Something Good. And wait, Brandon, do you have the... Yeah. Tell me that you like... Oh! <laughs> it, it was has, so, it it was has so to close. be the line after. <laughs> Tell me so something good, good every it was time. So close. <laughs> I think we're going to change the segment to be called uh, "Tell Me That You That tell You me Like that you Me." Like it. Yeah, tell, tell me that you like it. All right, okay. all right. So I've got a song. This is one I've heard recently. Uh, so we've got the whole what is it called um, Google Play thing set up in our house, so we can do a little intercom action between kids so we listen to music on that everyone's well you know hey google play such and such so anyway i've heard this song been playing and i'm like who is this band i thought it was some kind of new hip you know girl group doing something uh much much like haim the jason's one of jason's favorite uh, acts of the best 10 years no but anyway it's a, it's a band called the roaches i didn't know of them and Joanna's been listening to him. This specific one song that's kind of, I think it's come up, like Google algorithm has introduced it, I think, to, to Joanna. And so she's been listening to that one more and more. It's called Hammond Song. The Roaches are uh, from New Jersey. It's a three-sister three kind of uh, folk, maybe alternative folk group. Um, one of the Roaches sisters was married to Lou Don Wainwright after he had divorced from his wife. If you guys know Lou Don Wainwright... The third, you know him. He's kind of a, a folk singer-songwriter guy in the seventies. What are what are two of the other bands? Are you talking about Rufus Wainwright? Rufus Wainwright's dad. All right, and Martha Wainwright's dad. So he was, and their mom was. Uh, I, I learned about uh, Ludon Wainwright and then Rufus Wainwright's mother. They're both on the Squid and the Whale soundtrack. Right. And then after they divorced, Ludon Wainwright. Does this apply to the sisters. Roaches somehow? Yeah, one of the Roaches <laughs> married him. So is Rufus Wainwright's stepmother. So what it's a strange the other musical. Who do the other roaches marry? They scattered nah, into the nah. New Jersey apartment from which they. No, it's roaches. R O C H E S. Yeah, I got the it. The song is Hammond's song. Okay, let's hear. Let's hear it. Jeez.
skip forward, skip forward about uh, 30, 30 seconds before the end. Oh, you've got the triangle. I didn't notice that before. Okay, I, I wanted you to hear the little electric guitar thing, but... If you go down to Hammond, yeah. you'll never come back, That's which right. could be describing its beauty, or it could be the plot of a horror movie. That's right. That's right. Well, it's, it's actually... It's like... <laughs> Always it's the, the naysayer. It's about the naysayer. <laughs> so, like, there's, a, there's one voice that comes in, I went down to Hammond. So, like, it's like the family members that don't want the, the girl to go down to where her boyfriend is, and they're all saying, we'll still love you, but... And, and, but that's not the point and all this stuff. I went down to Amityville. <laughs> and I came back with an axe in my neck. Yeah. There's this really cool moment in there, and we don't need to go find it, but there, where there's this uh, electric guitar that comes in on one of those sustained, like they're not doing any vibrato. It's very almost jarring vocals. And there's this guitar that comes in matching that, and then it splits off and does like a weird little gu- cool guitar thing. But that's where I thought I was taking you when I said 30 seconds. I, I went too far. But that's the, the Roaches, the Hammond song. New to me. Uh, that was recorded in 1979, and that's it. Uh, who, who were each of them married to, though, at the time? Uh, <laughs> we got, we got one of them covered. Your grandpa. And one was, uh, <laughs> wow. Second, fam- second <laughs> family right. in New Jersey. No, uh, you know the Roaches. I uh, I I totally associate the Roaches with uh, the first season or early SNL because they 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 were one of those musical guests back. In, I think the first season or one of those early seasons with the original cast. Yeah. So I kind of think of them as that era, and I, I remember them floating around and being around with my uh, you know my good friend John Turley's older brother Tom, who was like our that that older brother that I didn't have and that some of the rest of yeah. us didn't have that was the cool guy and had the cool friends and was right. into the cool music and he he had a Roaches album or or helped helped us to them a little so I can't even think of what song it would have been but I just remember they were in the air in the in yeah, the early or late seventies early eighties when I was kind of starting to get more into music right, and right. stuff cool I like it I I'd never heard of them yeah new to me as well. Yes. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to launch into an epic journey today. I, I hope you enjoy it. I, I've enjoyed thinking about it and preparing it, preparing for it. Uh, and I'm really interested to see what my colleagues here are going to pick. But here's, here's what got me thinking in, in the direction we're going today. Uh, a friend and colleague of mine in music composition named Lou Bunk wrote an essay he called My Own Personal Canon. And I, I love the title of it, and 
in this essay, his we're both members of this organization called Seamus Society for Electroacoustic Music in the United States. Shame us, shame us. It's it's spelled like Seamus Haney. You Got know it. the S-E-A-M-U-S. the poet M U S. Yeah, but but it's I a, thought it was an invitation, and I had a few things. Seamus, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, well, start. If you insist, I've been saving up yeah. a few things. Now seems like the right time. <laughs> Tell us about this tweet that you sent out <laughs> in 2009. <laughs> We're gonna work through. Shame by shaming each other, and uh, no. Uh, so anyway, uh, we're we're both members of this organization, which is dedicated to electronic music, and tends to have a focus more of like you know academic electronic music. A lot of composers that teach at universities, etc. But um, so I think part of his intent in writing this essay was to sort of uh, suggest to our, that community. Hey, uh, you know, I know we all tend towards certain norms or or styles, or we kind of have our own orthodoxy. And here's a bunch of stuff that I don't really see a lot of this stuff happening very often at our conferences or with what we're doing. But this is all stuff that's super important to me. And in, in particular, I mean, he was talking about very personal musical connections and stuff like that. So it had a real personal aspect to it. But uh, so the the things I wanted to kind of the two things I thought of using that essay and that sort of thinking as a springboard were number one, we all kind of have our own personal canon, right? There are our albums, songs, artists, whatever that really are important to us. Maybe they line up with other more, you know, respected or prestigious lists. Maybe they don't, you know, but sometimes there are those nuggets or those gems that nobody else has even heard of, but to us, they're like really valuable, really important. And then the second part of it is just that notion of, like, you know, bunking the system, questioning that whole notion of canon. And I think that's been happening uh, socially, you know, throughout the ages, every every so often, you know, things, you know, things happen. People question the past. People wonder, what are we doing or why do we think this is the authority or whatever? But I think for our, you know, Western or American culture, society, whatever, the the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement that really especially got strong this last summer has really pushed examination across the board in all areas of society, culture, etc. It's it's even you know it's even happening in these little niche fields like, you know, music theory at the university level and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Well, people mm-hmm. are saying, look, is the canon it's the- time for four four time to go away as the dominant <laughs> the right. dominant narrative of four four time. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean so Anyway, I, I kind of want to launch it off to the rest of you to, to chime in on that, but I, I don't think our, our goal or mission today is to overthrow any established canons necessarily or overtly or directly, but it could be that in us sort of sharing the things that are most important to us, mm. some of them might be on those lists, but some of them might not, you know, and, and that's sort of an interesting thing to, mm. to realize. Yeah. I don't know. To so me. are you wanting, when you say, are you wanting us to... And I don't like this is there's like a sense of what's our personal canon, but also the self awareness of 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 a little bit of the why to that in a sense. I think so. I mean I think we, we've touched on that. We we've we've had in that direction a few times in this podcast and I keep pointing back to I hope Jason doesn't get too embarrassed, but he, he shared a very <laughs> heartfelt connection to uh 
to uh, Anthrax track, you know, and, and how like when he was a teenager and feeling like an outcast or whatever, that 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 track like inspired and empowered him. And mm-hmm. it's like a track I never heard. I st- uh, I still haven't gone to listen to, you know, right, but right. <laughs> out of respect to, to Jason, no, I, I should have. <laughs> out of respect yeah. to good taste. Yeah. Of, <laughs> well, and the, the other unique thing about this is we've done songs, songs, songs. We really haven't done albums. Right. So that's that's, the, that's what I wanted is albums because uh, I think albums, it kind of, it's like it, it represents more buy-in. Like if you're going to say this is a favorite album. I mean, maybe you like some tracks on that album better than others, but chances are there's something about all the tracks or the collection or the way it flows yeah, or whatever. For, for me, albums are a different listening experience. It's more of an investment of time, certainly. But I, I think in a lot of cases, it's a, a little, not to sound too pretentious, but I mean, we do have a podcast about music, so what, what else are we? But it, it is, an album does feel a little bit more like an intellectual experience as well. Like I, I engage with it much Usually at a, a, I mean, a song can hit me very deeply, but it's like sustaining either narrative or theme that I'm engaging with throughout, you know, a, a 40 to 60 minute album is a, a much different process. And it can tell, you know, I think a, a little bit of a, a richer, deeper story. And it is when those hit right, I think there is something for me personally that is. A, a little a little bit more impressive just to be able to do that across an album you know i can find that song but when it's a whole album those those you know those are the ones for me that are like that are life changing and that was the tricky part when i was like wrestling with the both both terms wrestling with the term personal and wrestling with the term canon like what exactly does that mean am i trying to be a tastemaker or can i really like lean into this and say, okay, this is the one that really personally impacted me and became part of my like DNA as not just musically, but perhaps even like influences my, my view of life, my worldview, then that, that's what I kind of came to for my personal interpretation of it but canon's an interesting word too like i I assume you want we want to maybe discuss that just a little bit the etymology of canon (laughs) (laughs) but i mean like how did you interpret it what is canon to you i just i just took it as like what are what are the albums that are like personally not necessarily what rolling stone would say or what i would want my friends to know i like what is like what did i honestly spend the most time with that's what i how i took it yeah and I, I don't that, know if that's I, how I everyone think took that's it. Right. If, if it was movies, the ones I've spent the most time with, Monty Python, Holy Grail, Wayne's World, Depeche Mode 101. So is that your <laughs> canon of movies? Personal. If, if, it's, if, if that's how you're listening. If, if that's like, the bar for canon, it's time. Yeah. I mean, you got to, the ones that had the most impact on me. I mean, I watched each of those at least 30 times in high school and junior high. There's nothing as an adult adult that you watch that you've watched 30, 30 times. times. Right, right. I know, but um, I think time... And, and, yeah. uh, and of Green Gables. But I think we, we, can all, <laughs> we can all interpret it our own way, too. Mary Poppins. For sure. I don't think it uh, has to sure. be time. I don't, for yeah. sure. Yeah, time, right. I mean, time, I think, is a, good, is a good indicator, but there's also, you know, those profound moments that maybe it's just yeah. uh, one moment, you yeah, know, or one true. experience. Yeah. Like when your Sunday school teacher uh, of your 12-year-old Sunday class shows you uh, Apocalypse Now and <laughs> Alien. And uh, so were you on it the was res- incredible. Were you the teacher <laughs> or were you the, the student? Yeah, that's what oh, I 
want to. No comment. Uh, <laughs> no. That's a, I was that's just, a great double feature. I, I, I don't think we watched them at the same party. Jeez, so, you got to have it like five hours. There's an apocalypse somehow, now. Somehow we snuck two Sunday school, uh, youth Sunday school parties by our parents <laughs> after screening one of those, and then we screened the other one. Did you say, I think it could a, be. Was it Alien or Aliens? A, alien, original. Oh, original. That's, that's a great On double laser feature. On LaserDisc. Wow. Not, yeah. not DVD. Wow. LaserDisc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? There we okay. go. Anyway, no names will be shared. Okay, go ahead. Are we ready? Yeah, uh, so well, <laughs> what's the order? Do you want to discuss it in canon anymore? You Sorry, it's just dragging d- out. Dive uh, into uh, it, man. I, we, I think we can just dive in, but I mean, the, the only last thing I'll say is like not that long ago, one of, one of you guys via our text chain shared a recent, was it a Pitchfork ranking? The, the best 20 albums of the last 20 years, was mm-hmm. it? Was or, it you? Yeah, it was, it was Spin Magazine. Okay. 35 albums of Th- the last 35 years. Right, mm-hmm. and it, was, it seemed like that, that was... That was almost like a canon bucking list. You know what I mean? It was kind of like saying, this is a new canonical list. Or, hey, th- these, these are all important, but these are things you might have missed, you might have overlooked. And, and I kind of like that. And, and so mm-hmm. I don't, I don't want to make that a requirement for yeah. what we so do. So that, that was where it got a little tricky for me, the concept uh, of personal canon. Because canon yeah. is like this agreed-upon thing. Experts well. take it as the base. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm just one person. I'm well, one you are, point. you are the expert. It's sort of, it's, yeah, it, maybe it's, I don't know. Maybe it doesn't work. It's, no, I think it does. There's a conflict there, it, but it, yeah. I looked at it as my DNA. Like, it's the DNA of, of yeah. who I am musically. I think that's good. Yeah. yeah. I would agreed. love to agreed. not start. <laughs> so, I don't know if you want to do the randomizer. If, if, Just start uh, with Brandon. Yeah, let's, let's, we could go clockwise and hit it off with the maestro, Brandon. Let's do it. Okay. Do it. Uh, well, what are... He's not wearing pants either. <laughs> what are the rules? <laughs> Doesn't want to ruin the crease. Let, let's establish some rules first. Oh, boy. Some rules to this knife fight. Grand rules. Um, if, uh, if an artist gets chosen, then are they out? Well, Hall, for, Is this like Hall of Fame <laughs> nomination I don't, picks? I don't think I would say if an artist is chosen, he's out, because we're going albums. If an album is chosen. If an album is okay. chosen, I think it's out, but I, I, I really would be so surprised if there's some overlap because because of the kind of delving yeah, personally. I, but I'll we'll be see. surprised we'll as well. See. It, it, but I would be interested if two people have different albums from the same artist. I kind of want to hear it. Because, yeah. yeah. Yep. Agreed. All right. I should uh, I should have some stuff lined up already. I didn't know I was going first, but here <laughs> but we go. But that would spoil the the tone of the. Yeah, of we the need to have some nice long breaks while I. We type. should do a we <laughs> should do a, a guess. See if we can guess any anybody from a from. A, I want to I want to guess Brandon's Jordan's. I couldn't mm. guess Steve's. Steve's. I wouldn't even know where to start. <laughs> maybe maybe that Miles Davis album you referenced. We'll see. It, it, yeah. Okay. What am, what am I about to pick right now? Um, it's either going to be a Rage Against the Machine or a Tool album. I was thinking the same. It is not. Neil Young. Mastodon same, or Neil Young? Same year, though. Same year. Maybe. I don't know exactly. Is there a year for a... Well, Tool uh, Undertow came out in 93, right? Sure. Was that the same year as Rage Against the Machine? I think it was. Yeah. Uh, this is Iceburn, Hephaestus. Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. If, if it's my personal canon, Iceburn's got to be in there. Yeah, good. My... Uh, the band that I've seen perform live the most times. Uh, by by the end of the 90s, I'd seen them 16 times, and I think I've seen them five times since then with wow. their their occasional reunions. Um, so this is... They, they're a local band from Salt Lake. That's why I was able to see them so often. They'd come to Provo pretty often, too. And 
think their first album was 91. And that one's more of a kind of typical uh, hardcore, um, not necessarily typical, it's but better, along, better than typical along those veins. You could you could tell there were some prog elements in there and some some classical training. You know they they work in some solos from Vivaldi's Winter and and some Bugs Bunny samples. Yeah. Um, but then their second album, Hephaestus, they went off the rails. This is uh, eighty minutes, twenty eight tracks. Well, twenty yeah. On the CD, there's twenty eight tracks. On the record, there's four. But not really a break in between songs. And oh, I love having the dogs. Where are my dogs at? It's so good. Who let the dogs out? <laughs> We've got my mom's dog That's my here first with album us. So, take is so any any kid on the sidewalk will generate a, a chorus of barking. Um, anyway, here we go. They were they were down to a three piece by the time they recorded this album. And so here's what here's what I think we do. I, I just tell us how you want to present it to us. Are you just going to go? We're just going to dive deep and just listen for a while. You're going to bounce one track here, one track here, one track here. How do you want us to experience this? I think with well with this particular album, I'm just going to choose. I'm just going to hit play on one of these and we'll listen for a bit. Uh, we'll start out on the song is called Brick, and here we go.
Yeah, mm. boy, I wish we would have had some video feed there for mm-hmm. Brandon's mm-hmm. head banging at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that one does it for me. Yeah. The whole album. The whole album is... Uh, Did it, it immediately connect for you, or was no. it a, It took some work? No. I had seen them live before I'd heard them uh, recorded. And so I bought the album, and this was the first one I bought. And then, you know, I was kind of confused and disappointed, I guess, for the first few listens. I'm like, what is going on here? This, this isn't... You know, I wanted uh, that... Just initial, uh, I don't know, easy, easy to digest. The, the reason I asked, their first album was more like yeah. So mine was so, so my friend Dwayne that I've referenced, he always had more sophisticated taste than I did, and he would st- refer stuff to me, and I was like, this sucks. But then I would eventually realize, oh no, Dwayne knows these songs. So Fire on their first album, I immediately clicked. I was like, this is kick ass. Then when he referred that album to me. It did not click at first for me at all. It like it took some work, yeah. but then it's one of those that's weirdly stayed in rotation for me for a long time as well. And it has some like just incredible moments that are like beautiful and then disorienting. And it's a I love that album. That's a great pick, and that is as Brandon of a pick as there is. <laughs> it's so good. Those these are it's all a, be. It's constantly uh, intellectually stimulating to me because there's so much going on there. That it rewards the the repeated listens. Um, you can tell there's a lot of math rock stuff going on there with the the time changes and the the weird chords, and you know that was all one song. But I don't think there's any two. Well, how would you divide that up in in terms? Would it be stanzas when they it does like a a complete riff, or something? <laughs> yeah, I mean you could it's call longer, it it's longer than a measure, but. Yeah, a, a phrase might be okay. something you could, you could use, musical term. I think in the whole album, there aren't any two phrases that are... Uh, and There isn't any phrase that's repeated more than twice. Huh. I think it'll do it twice, and then it changes a little bit, and then it evolves, and then the... Wow. Yeah. I like the polyrhythmic stuff going on there. That was cool. That's a good word for that album. It feels mm-hmm. like you're experiencing evolution, it, because it's this thing that seamlessly runs through the, the whole thing, but it's not... It's constantly changing. It's a it's a cool album. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I love. Yeah. I mean, the pattern. It's it's it seems like it's alternating five beat and then six beat, right? And and it's one of those things sometimes. That, and then it goes to three, and then it, right, you know, right, 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 right. And then there was a moment. Uh, yeah, and I wasn't always like tuning in exactly, but it's it's interesting how you even though that's irregular at first the irregularity throws you off or it makes it hard to like pin it down you're like wait what i love i like this but i can't figure out where to tap my foot or what's happening and then finally you lock into it and it just sounds normal it's like oh this is five and then the six and you feel it and so then later on they like change it up and they like did they were doing just five right in a row like five 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 they didn't put the six in there and i was like oh whoa that and just a little subtle shift like that will kind of like shake you up or it's it's really effective and and then the fact that the vocals you know come in so long you know it's just like i'm like oh okay it's an instrumental yeah yeah this guy should be teaching this stuff (laughs) (laughs) i will say too even though this is brandon's pick and i want to hijack his pick but i love it because it's it's definitely been an important album to me too i want to shout out gentry densley's guitar tone it's it's weird 
and awesome and distinct. That, that's the tone I've been aiming for my whole life. And I was going to say, I, like, I've never been able to get it, but it, man, it's good. Um, it's not. It's not a perfect album, especially no. the way I think the technology-wise, because it's recorded local studio, um, and I think it it has that sound that's of its time. Um, but also, exciting! It's exciting. They are also not known for their um, vocal beauty. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you kind of have to deal with. It's, with it's that, not their strength, but it's it's more about the the instruments. Um, but the rumor is they are remastering this album oh, cool. this year. So we'll get to. They're fun though. Time they use version. time as an instrument in their, especially in their later albums. It's it's mm. kind of cool how they manipulate it. Ah. Okay, Jordan. Is that it? Is that's, that it's part it of my DNA? There we go. Okay, so this one, I, I you know, came up my list like probably you guys, and then trying to figure out, and it just came back to me. It's got to be on there. This is a. Greatest Hits album, and, you know, at first I was like, I can't do a Greatest Hits album, but then it was like, no, no I can't. have to. I have to do a Greatest whoa, Hits whoa, album. you can't. <laughs> Bull****. <laughs> All right. Listen, who in the Uh-oh. 90s as a Uh-oh. high schooler was not listening to Greatest Hits albums, right? Like, that's what we were listening to. Yeah. So and this the, is part of Steve's thing of, like, disc? There's Steve problems. Miller band. There's problems with canons in terms of like Zeppelin you know, box set. You're 15, Some you're 16. Some people call you're it a space cowboy, right? No. Okay. So <laughs> this is uh, interestingly enough. This compilation is Rolling Stones put it on one of their 500 greatest albums of all time. So it is treated like an album in that sense because I think when it was put together and came out, it reintroduced a new generation to one of the greatest. Most influential artists of the past Journey's six greatest years. Tits. You got it. Let's put it up there. Journey. No, uh, <laughs> this is James Brown. T- James Brown's greatest hits. Twenty greatest hits. So it's twenty of his songs from the fifties, sixties, seventies. It was twenty all time greatest hits. Twenty all time greatest hits. So it was this, released in nineteen ninety one. This makes sense then because his discography is strange. He has too much overlap. It does make sense. Yeah. I, it no, does. this makes yeah. total sense. I get it. Yeah. So um, so 1991 was released, and I, I chose this one first because, well, this is chronologically for me the first one in the canon of three that I've chosen. Um, so let's go ahead and listen to, we've already listened to some James Brown here, so we're not going to listen to the same ones we've already listened to. I, I mean, I listened to this album. This is why I chose it. I've listened to this album so many times as a 16-year-old, 17-year-old, you know, leading up those last years of high school. And since then, it really... Uh, I, I was playing saxophone at the time, but I was never really excited about some of the stuff I would listen to saxophone-wise. But then I would listen to James Brown, and I'd hear the horns and the solos, and it was different. It was rhythmic more than melodic. There was more space rather than, like, even though I liked John Coltrane, and I, you know, it, was, it still felt like homework to me as a high school student to listen to John Coltrane and a lot of jazz. But when I'd listen to Maceo Parker's solo, it was different. It was like, oh. So I want to listen to Popcorn first. It's track four. Um, yeah, let's let it play. Okay. Yeah, 
over me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on. Look here. So you hear him calling for Maceo, and of course they fade out on Maceo's solo. So I had to go find the the, the unfaded version, but I'm just gonna fast forward to that. Fade away right away, but that. Yeah, what's that about? I know. Why? I why mean, spend it, so much time calling for Maceo and then just fade it out? Well, it was because it was on Producers. this compilation, yeah, and it was this 20, 20 greatest hits. But that's when I got to the JBs, and then you could hear Maceo's solos more. I'm gonna play just one more from this album. I'm gonna play the payback. Talking loud but saying nothing. This is the payback. So this is on the tw- same twenty greatest hits album. The Payback by James Brown. So this was one from a album. That last one was from probably the early or the late '60s. Popcorn, and this is from '73. The Payback. The groove here. The the tempo is slower. You guys have probably heard this song before. I think they even made a movie called The Payback with Mel Gibson, and this was like the track on the the trailer. Like we're gonna sell this movie from this James Bond song, you know, or a James Brown song. So here's the Payback. I love that transition. It's so good. <laughs> the groove is so like thick and so good. Yeah. I mean, you can hear like D'Angelo's voodoo in this. You can hear so much hip hop and so much stuff yeah. that came later. Okay, you can bring it down. One of his best lyrics in that, I don't know karate, but I know crazy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. 
I love the, I can dig rapping. Yeah. I'm ready. I can dig scrapping. Yeah. That's but right. I can't do no backstabbing. No backstabbing. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a great album. And it is, it is an album. Um, well, that's when I can see doing, doing the greatest hits with. Because you don't think of James Brown as an album guy. Right, he's, he he had some that were, but he had so many. He had some that were like, oh, this is an iconic, he, like Alive at the Apollo, and then he had like his his one where he's behind bars. But like, is there any prison. of his albums that's like as an album? It's an artistic statement. It seems more not just as like, much. As these you, are the songs that we recorded. This you know, the closest last six one months. might be like one of his soundtracks that he did, yeah. like Black Caesar soundtrack right, or something. Right. But he's hard too. I think there was some label stuff that went on, like with him and with Ike and Tina Turner, where they had almost like multiple they had albums coming out on different types of labels and so they would have this song overlap on different albums depending on what they could get released where and he was trying to be so prolific it's hard to just like if you go in to a go comb through an old record store that has a good selection of used stuff you don't even know where to start with the james brown there might be 20 albums you don't even know what one to pick out right yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a, I mean, it was my entry point for sure. And I, I've, I've been playing it for my kids the last 10 years. And so they know a lot of these songs. So it's coming uh, back. It's worth it. Awesome. Come back to it. Popcorn is just like mother popcorn up there with, uh, you know, I got the feeling mm-hmm. or cold sweat. It's just so good so and funky. tight. Yeah. And I love, I mean, the, even just little things like the, with that horn riff, but ba ba Bow! Like that fall, that fall uh-huh. on the end of four, mm-hmm. it's like that little note, that that beat, like just stays in my mind, and it, right, how, and it probably even you know if I'm playing horn and trying to do that, you know that bow, yeah, doing a, like right. a quick fall like that, it's just so. And then I love when they get to the bridge that it's 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 two beats right on bum, the beat, but bum. it sounds so like weird and different yes. because everything else has been so syncopated and suddenly things like contrast like, oh, yeah. and puzzles bop, fitting bop. together. And I remember <laughs> walking in my freshman year, in B- I was a music major at BYU, so you would have been, I don't know, Steve, you would have been out in your graduate program somewhere in yeah. 96. I remember walking by a music theory class, and the professor was playing James Brown, one of, like either uh, track three or track four, either Popcorn or, or I Got That Feeling, and I remember I was like, Whoever that is, I need to take this class. Like, like, and he was like trying to like convert them. He was so excited about listen to this and listen to that. And I was just like a freshman sitting outside. It was these upper yeah. level whatever. And I was. If I was a betting man, I'd say it's our my friend Mike Hicks that I you guys have kind of got acquainted with. He's is one of our handful of yeah. listeners of the podcast. But yeah, he's he's folded James Brown into various of his his yeah. classes for sure. That's awesome. It was exciting. Yeah. yeah. Jason's up. Oh, am I up? You are up. All right. Um, so when I thought of canon, like one of the words that came to mind kind of weirdly, maybe not that weird, it's canon, was like the word scripture. Yeah, like, yeah. And uh, so I was trying to think of like what albums would I consider scripture. And um, this album that I'm going to start with actually has some connection to James Brown. J- James Brown. Um, it'll sort of be interesting to see because I think it's an – uh, an evolutionary point of what James Brown started. It's an album I didn't like at first. In fact, I, I found it really off-putting the first maybe two or three times I, I really tried to listen to it. And it ended up becoming probably one of the albums that 
impacted my worldview more than just about any other album. One of the other things I thought about, I, I thought about the longevity piece with Canon. This is an album that I have owned on tape, on CD, on LP, and I have owned the MP3s of it as well. So I've paid money to own it on four different formats. So it's been part of my life, like through the the whole transition of how we consume music. And it's a, uh, it's a public enemy album. Mm. Um, It's, you know, probably no surprise. I've referenced it on here. It's fear of a black planet. It is the first time I listened to it. I found it really off-putting and disorienting. I didn't even feel like it was music. The first track you listened to, it, like it pulled me in. I was like, this is going to be a great hip hop album. And then immediately it went into this. So what they did is they took, uh, it was produced by the bomb squad and, uh, and Chuck D and they brought in this, um, there's a horn, a James Brown or JB's horn that kind of runs in the background through much of it. And they make it feel like an alarm. And mm-hmm. after the first track, it essentially feels like there's an alarm playing throughout much of the remainder of the album uh to the point that it i think for some people it can almost be an irritant i think aesthetically it lines up really well with the the tone of the album the album serves as an alarm and it's kind of this education piece i was hearing about terms and historical names and even issues that were so foreign to me it introduced me to a a world that I really didn't know existed. And the way that Chuck D delivers it, there's such an element of kind of seriousness and importance to it, but it's also mixed with this incredible, really, really dense production. It's hard to really take it all in the first time. My Here's my hot take on it. I think... I think it's on par with the Beastie Boys' Paul's Boutique. It's mm. this really dense... I mean, there's like... I think there's over 200 samples on it, similar to what the Dust Brothers did with, with Paul's Boutique. I think that artistically, it has some of the same DNA as Paul's Boutique, but I think Fear of a Black Planet is what happens when the people that are t- tuned into that kind of artistic mode of really dense production are dealing with are carrying the weight of over a hundred years of systemic marginalization that comes out through their music instead of becoming a, a party album. Mm. And, and that's, that's what it, it, it has become for me. So I'll just jump into it. I want to do kind of a deep dive. I want to go through, I want to go through the first five tracks, not in their entirety, but just to give a sample of what it's like. If you've never listened to this album, just what you come into. By the way, this is the same album that um, Fight the Power is on. I'm not going to play that one. I think everybody's probably familiar with it. But just start right off. Uh, start off with the first track, Contract on the World Love Jam. You've got a great meter sample from a rejuvenation. And it kind of pulls you in. This is more traditional hip-hop. And then I'll give you the signal to jump over to, to Brothers Gonna Work It Out. And we'll just kind of go through the first six just wanna, a taste of each you one. You want to just drive on this one? Um, I did, you're tell good. Me I'll, all just, the... I'll just. Okay. I'll just give you the signal. I trust you.
Kind of like Chewbacca. <laughs> There's James Brown. Yep. Okay, now jump over to Brothers Gonna Work It Out. So hit pause on that, Brandon. So this would be the point where I'd be like, I think I like this, but it's making me uncomfortable. And there was the disorientation of the music. They have that tuned up JB sample that they that mm -hmm. Terminator X did something to. And then tonally, Chuck D was scaring me. And it, like, it was like, uh, can I lean into this? So yeah. then the next track is 911 is a joke. And you got Flavor Flav talking about how... <laughs> ambulances won't come into inner city areas I mean, this is blowing my mind give us a sample of that and then i'll just go straight from there into uh the next two and that'll uh, that'll be my pick All right, jump to the next one. We'll miss the F word. Boom. <laughs> so this is, they took a sample of a radio interview where Chuck D was being interviewed and the callers were being very racist. They were calling in. They built it right into their song. They said, this well, is what we're confronting. there i saw them open up for the beastie boys i know it's interesting that's a whole different interesting thing so now just jump to welcome to the terror dome this is the one we'll end on so i'm listening to that and i'm like this isn't even a song i, I could not wrap my mind around like artistically what was happening and the, and this it's seamless it's the same thing there's not breaks between tracks it just goes weaves from 
track to track to track. And so that tone in the background that feels like an alarm just doesn't stop. All right, you can kill it. I've taken enough time. So <laughs> it, it, when I talk, you know, when I say like scriptural, I've been listening to that album. It's been part of my life for 25 years. I've been listening to it nonstop for 25 years. I still listen to it and hear new things musically and lyrically that I didn't pick up on before. It 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 continues to it just continues to work for me. It's absolutely part of my canon, my personal canon. Absolutely. Nice. Hard to, uh, I mean, they were such a powerful, uh, you know, they, they were kind of on the scene in early MTV days, too. And just the, the, the image and the sound of, of Flavor Flav with Chuck D, you know, and there yeah. you couldn't, you couldn't, you, you know, it was just kind of like a, almost like cultural icon of the, the Flavor Flav with the big stopwatch or whatever mm-hmm. or clock that he'd yeah. have around his neck and his kind of quirky moves and, and even just like. And, and Chuck D with that powerful kind of baritone, just just solid in the middle of all this chaos. Um, anyway, yeah, interesting sounds, and I, that, that's that's a band I got to do more of a deep dive with. I just kind of know the stuff that was in the air. Yeah, you, you can tell just uh, just these few tracks that there is a lot of thought put into this, and it's you know yeah, conceptually as an album as a whole, it's not one that I've listened to all the, all the way through, but. It's very intriguing and seems worth the time. It's a yeah. it's a wild trip. Yeah, good pick. I think that's I, yeah. so. Like I, when I think of you, and if I was to guess, right? Like think back. Same with Brandon. Like the, both of your picks are very, like I think, uh, yeah, they're well placed in terms of. And in honor of that about. guy that said that when he sees somebody wearing their shirt, he he thinks they're scum. <laughs> <laughs> You've got it. You've got it. <laughs> That was interesting, the whole the awesome. Beastie Boys fan that's like, that's discuss, you know, like, speaking about problematic stuff and, and, and interrogating, I mean, Paul's Boutique is on my short list of one of these albums, mm-hmm. and at the time, I, w- I had never gotten into rap. Like, I loved James Brown, I loved funk, I loved, I loved black music in so many forms, but hip-hop just seemed a little bit just beyond. You know, I liked Bust a Move, and I liked some of the, like, Young MC, some of that stuff. But then Beastie Boys, I could get into, and I loved it. But then the, as soon as there was like a Beastie Boys album with the with Q-Tip on it, and mm-hmm. it was like there was more swears on that one, I was like, oh, this one's a little too too dangerous. I never thought of it as a black and white thing. Right. But later, when I started listening to more hip-hop, I realized that there was something about race that I was more comfortable with Beastie Boys. And I didn't like that reality that I came to. As I was more comfortable with the Beastie Boys. They were saying all sorts of, you know, vulgar and, and, and problematic stuff. But what it gave to me at the time as a kid was like this, like, like confidence and like, 
you know, this backbone when I'd listen to, to right. rap music. But it's interesting to hear that guy who's like, I was at the Beastie Boys and they were horrible. They had Uzi. He was afraid of the black guy. It was appalling because the they guns. were black. Yeah. So that's it's fascinating. Yeah. I, I, I missed seeing Jordan's gloves. They really are warm leather I and gloves. <laughs> I told you. I just put them on because my, yeah. No, they're the, they're I was like, yeah, all Warm right. leatherettes is a better, I should take that instead of, like, my wife and kids and I, we all call them my OJ gloves. <laughs> oh, boy. They're like, uh, you know. yeah, that's all right. Uh, I was, uh, okay. I'm, if, if I told you guys I'm going to pick an album from the first half of the 1980s decade, mm-hmm. I wonder if you guys could guess it. Probably Diva. not. I'm guessing. Not Diva? I mean, my guess would be an Elvis Costello album. Oh, you guys are warm. It's Costello, Dio, or Talking Heads. You guys are very warm. Those are those guys are all on my sort of desert island list. But the album I'm going to pick is "The Flat Earth" by Thomas Dolby. Ooh, okay. Yeah. And so Thomas, I, I had a little bit of yeah. pangs of. Pain from Thomas Dolby not making an appearance on our new wave mm-hmm, episode, mm-hmm. and he he certainly was was there with the rest of them, uh, probably just as strong. And and there's a lot of these hits that he had before that Flat Earth album, like um, you know she blinded me with science. It was like everywhere mm-hmm. and kind of fun and quirky, and other sort of stranger tunes like Europa and the Pirate Twins and. Uh, one of our submarines. I don't know if that's the actual title of the song, but just these kind of strange, epic, weird songs. But anyway, I I love this album. I didn't I didn't do a lot of digging, but as I I was just digging a little bit back into Thomas Dolby in this album, um, he he's currently a professor at the Peabody School of Music or the Peabody Conservatory at Johns Hopkins University. Yeah. Yeah, in Baltimore, and he's he's professor of yeah. My glasses are all fogged up now, so I gotta. He's prof, you know he's a professor of music for new media, or he's head of the music for new media program there. So Dr. Dolby, I did not I did not know that. That's interesting. Um, he, uh, I mean, in addition to his hits, he was also kind of a session musician, right? Maybe you guys, some of you guys know this, but uh, one of the albums that I knew he played on is Malcolm McLaren's Duck Rock, which which hmm. would have been a contender. For, for being in my canon because it's that, that's this weird quirky album that kind of brings these different influences together in the early 80s there and that not, I, ju- I just listened to over and over including hip hop you know and, it's not and, from the Howard the Duck soundtrack no okay. no <laughs> and that's see the, just this kidding. this album I think is the thing is, is this album I feel like is kind of like the distillation of a lot of his work before this album which is 1984 and then after this album yeah I, I did he kind of loses me you know I the Howard the Duck thing was I think probably the biggest debacle and, the, and then he has things like you know the Aliens Ate My Buick or something like that I just I just didn't really keep following him or listen a whole lot after this album but this album i love our, our neighbor sam Payne loves this album too so uh, mm. i haven't done much groundwork on this but i did send a text to sam Payne a while ago saying let's celebrate the end of covid by staging a live performance of thomas dolby the flat earth so mm. he's on board so i'll probably rope you guys in it's just <laughs> in the, the the beginning stages but i'm going to start transcribing and figuring out how to do it <laughs> anyway Blah blah blah. So uh, the only uh, the other thing I'll say is that I, I mean I love this album. I love every track on this album. I, and and I think I love like what, what might connect a little bit with what um, Jason was saying about that Public Enemy album is the 
the transitions. This is a more, it's less of a constant beat or constant through of something in the album, but I think it's a really artful, beautiful album in terms of how one track follows the next and how one kind of just goes into the next. And um, Thomas Dolby is the producer on it. So it's an example of one of those things where... um, He's he's not only writing the songs and singing, but but he's he was you know he's always been a tech head. And after he got done being a rock star, he went to Silicon Valley and started a tech company and is, has done all these all these various things. But he's you know he obviously is taking care to craft it. I even I even found that he uh, he produced a couple of tracks on a George Clinton album. Oh wow, That's on cool. the uh, joke. What some of my best friends are jokes. No, wait, what is it? Punchlines or something about jokes and punchlines. That that album. So he produced a couple tracks of that album. But he also is a session musician. I'm almost done. Uh, This uh, Joan Armitrading. Do you know her? Does that that ring a bell? She's Mm. kind of a folk alternative singer from Britain. But she has this song, Walk Under Ladders. And I think that's the name of the album, too. One of my favorite songs that probably would make it on a top 20 songs of all time and he he ends up playing on that song as well where are we going with this steve is so, this part of this album the flat earth Let, who was what? he married to that's what i want to know rufus wainwright rufus wainwright's son he that would be a strange marriage i think he's a lot older than rufus wainwright i don't think does rufus have something let's uh do you want to play a song from this what here's what i was thinking um I'd like to play, if, if you can somehow cue up the album in a way that we can hear the end of one track go immediately to the next track. Can you do that? Sure. So let's hear the end, the last minute of the first track, Dissidence, and how it just goes right into the flat earth.
All right, well, you can, you can fade this out a little bit. So, anyway, I love that transition and, yeah. and a lot of the transitions from the song just kind of have this nice ebb and flow. So, you know, that, that first song, I think, is a good opener, really fast, energetic, and then right when it gets done, kind of get this more atmospheric stuff. And That was good. My experience with Dolby up to that point was just being blinded by his yeah. science. <laughs> Dude, that first track that you played, I was like, this is concentrated new wave. This is like every... I felt like there the, first, so many I felt like the first track, we could have had the discussion of, is it funk? It was put. In, uh, it was so much of yeah. like Devo and yep. Pet Shop Boys and yep. Talking Heads and all I sorts think that's of a, stuff. Yeah, I, I, that's a great description, and and I think that's why I love this album. It's 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 concentrated. It's kind of like the distillation of all that's been happening over the last five plus years, you know. And it's got the technology. Obviously, it's got the drum machine, and I think that's maybe the most dated thing about it. You know, you hear that right in the center, that you know, drum machine. But I, I like overall. I really love the production. Uh, quality and approach and the way he's balancing the synth and the the drum machine but with the singing and the acoustic instruments the bass player is this guy matthew seligman which i didn't know that name till this morning but he played with thompson twins he plays uh he backs up david bowie on his live aid performance so he's Mm -hmm. kind of like a a british session new wave guy who's around and i love the bass playing on this album too and then the final thing okay uh uh, any any pop album that had trombone in it, you know, oh, I mean, at, at the time was going to be big for me. The big, the big track <laughs> off this album is the last track, Hyperactive, but yeah. and has a big trombone. It, it's got a big trombone lick. Okay, that's fine. Everybody knows that one. But the song that I love that, that really won my heart on this album is actually a cover by this guy, Dan Hicks. Dan Hicks and the Hot Licks. Oh. It's that I Scare Myself, that song. It's actually a cover. But so if you can play I Scare Myself, it's kind of got a more torchy, jazzy, loungy kind of vibe. You know, you guys will know the song. We skip ahead to the trombone solo, so maybe go like a minute or two ahead and see where we are.
never. I've, yeah, I've heard of that blinded with me, me with science song, but I've never uh, known the guy's name. I've never known Thomas Dolby. <laughs> really? Never. Wow. If you had MTV in the '80s, which I don't think you did, he was a mainstay. He was. They, he was a, a had a, a a real moment on MTV. Yeah, 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 for sure. Cool stuff. But I was a fan, and then this was a one of the, a cassette I bought. You know that I just listened to the heck out of it, and there you have it. My first pick. Well done. Round two. All right. Yeah, now. Round two. <laughs> Let's do this. Five more hours. Here so, we do we need to make any uh, any tweaks after we've been through a round? <laughs> I don't think so. I think just try to keep the momentum going. You know, like we got to push through. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Brandon, do this. You're Blind right. us with some science. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do this. Uh, I'm going to go with Grace by Jeff Buckley. Hmm. Uh, he's. Uh, I mentioned him during the '90s episode. And he he's one that he really only has this this album. He's uh, he died while recording his second album, so we have some unfinished stuff of this. Um, but good grief for for having this be your your debut album. This is he knocked it out of the park on this one, and it's uh, it's been a part of my DNA since uh, I, I'd never heard of him till I started dating Kara, and. She really liked him, so I started listening to the album, and I've I've listened to it a ton since then. And track for track, every every song on here is great. Um, which, if if you haven't listened to it, probably the song that everybody knows is "Hallelujah," his uh, his cover of the Leonard Cohen song, which has now been so overcovered that ruined. It's, yeah. Is is there another song that's been more more ruined by overcovering? I'm sure there are candidates, but <laughs> it's it's up there. It's up there. <laughs> it, it turns up on every music contest TV show yeah. in every form. Uh, even was, even so, the... his is still my favorite. You like yeah. Buckley's it, over Cohen's? I do, I and, and I I, yeah, I mean same. I just can't get over his voice and mm-hmm. delivery and everything. It's just so did you hear great. They did a, the inauguration? I mean, that's how far it's come. Like they. That was like the or the oh, memorial boy. the day before the inauguration, the memorial for COVID. You know where uh, oh, wow. yeah. Biden and Harris spoke at the Lincoln Memorial, and they had it was like going to be this this moment of uh, grief and and uh, mourning for the whole nation. And the song they had was they had a woman sing Hallelujah. So I'm like, wow, that song has officially become now the <laughs> like a unifying song. It for is the an inter- that one's an interesting song because it. Um, if it hadn't had Shrek in between there, then we could still yeah, you see, yeah, tolerate it. But done by Rufus Wainwright, by the way, who's come up in this episode like four or five times. It's an interesting song because sometimes the 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 tone, the emotion that the singer communicates is in slight contrast with the lyrics mm-hmm. of it. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a really yeah. fascinating song that can right. kind of can go mean a lot of ways. different things. Yeah. So, um, what you got for us? Yeah, I'm not going to play that one. I want to play maybe two or, two or three from this uh, just to showcase kind of the varieties that, that he could do, both with his voice and, and guitar and just the style of, of songs. 
this one is track four, Lilac Wine. Mm-hmm. Put my heart in its recipe Makes me see what I want to see got one of those magnificent otherworldly voices uh, hopelessly romantic <laughs> uh, so that's that's one of the, uh, the slow ballad kind of songs a few of those on the album uh, here's another one Lover You Should Have Come Over uh, I'll start about halfway through this one Too young to hold on and too fun to to watch him live too he's got a uh, a few live shows recorded in their entirety on youtube and he's kind of like james brown like just after a few songs just drenched in sweat mm. he, he puts it all out there he's a performer <laughs> yeah, yeah. was he now he's got the the added thing like a lot of the kind of iconic stars do of a, an early death did he was he one of the ones who died at age 27 one of the 
that yeah, fit into yeah, the whole was, 27 he was young phenomenon uh-huh you guys have heard of that right the 27 yeah. thing yeah anyway interesting good stuff he's he's great all right, is that your second album? You're you're wrapped up. Yep. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna just go in and th- it, it's hard to pick the the top three. I decided to go with uh, D'Angelo's Voodoo for for my second one here. I was debating a few different albums that I listened to around that time and and the few years before, um, but this is one that um, just top to bottom is so 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 good. And we've talked about it on here. I think we played. I think I played one track in my in the 2000s episode i think i played the last track which is actually kind of like a deep cut it seems like a lot of people don't you don't hear that one um that often but but uh voodoo was the second the sophomore album for d'angelo his name is michael eugene archer from virginia he grew up playing piano and organ in his church with his grandma and was kind of a prodigy at a young age of just playing stuff by ear and loved Prince and loved and would hear a lot of gospel music, but he had this real, uh, um, what's the word, this real am- uh, antagonism in terms of do I, do I go the worldly way and play music that I love that's kind of more popular and worldly, or do I just devote to the church because he had these kind of strict church upbringing forces, but his grandmother, who he went to church with a lot, was like, hey, be yourself, kind of, even though she was the, the most religious she was also the most kind of uh from from the interviews i've heard with him he does some interviews with tavis smiley that are that are pretty interesting that she was encouraging him to kind of do what he feels is right in terms of with his music so he did brown sugar in 95 that was like this big album you think sophomore slump maybe but then voodoo comes out in 2000 i didn't know about him i was one year off off of my mission for the lds church and i was in a band with my cousin Tim Tippetts, and then a couple of his friends from Salt Lake, and we were playing this kind of groovy, funky music. We were all listening to the same kind of stuff, like Al Green and Marvin Gaye and James Brown, and then 90s hip-hop and stuff. And then they start all telling me, you've got to hear this D'Angelo. You've got to hear D'Angelo. And the band that we were in, we were basically trying to play stuff that had beats like this. It was like Questlove-type beats groovy type bass stuff and it was totally instrumental so not the type of thing that the BYU students were really excited about hearing the instrumental groove mellow groove stuff with saxophone anyway we would listen to D'Angelo this voodoo album all the time and so good so that's the backup to that and so let's listen to the first track playa playa and it kind of creeps in so we'll have to let it go for a, a minute a minute and a half or so and then play a couple other tracks Yeah. 
Um, yeah, you can bring it down. So that's track one, Play a Plate. You've got Questlove is actually on the the uh, drums on this one. Uh, DJ Premier was, it was produced by D'Angelo, but DJ Premier also was a co-producer, and he does the beats on at least one of the tracks. It was famously recorded at Electric Lady Studios in New York, which I think was Jimi Hendrix's place, and then during this time, it was all the neo-soul, Common, uh, a bunch of other artists were recording these kind of like the Soulquarians. The Soulquarians. They were doing these albums in the studio space and they were all there. So a lot of these tracks have these clap tracks where people are clapping. And it's you've got Erica Badu, you've got uh Talib Kweli, you've got Common, you've got Questlove, they're all there. And and these different people, you'll hear interviews talking to them about it, how it was just like this album this album in particular yeah. seemed to be like the culmination of all of them right. coming in and, and contributing, helping right. out. It's it's you've got uh, they were influenced by Jay Dilla and his kind of production style and the kind of non quantized sense of we're gonna do something really tight but also very human. So it's there's some some like it's not the new wave like the drum beat stuff, but then there's the the, the percolating uh, sensibilities of funk and new wave and that, but uh, very. Uh, very cool stuff. So let's go to track four, which is on the line. Track number nine, Spanish Joint. This has uh, Charlie Hunter on guitar. A little more up-tempo, a little more Latin feel. You want to give us a little taste of track 11 great day in the morning slash booty <laughs> 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 how close that kick bass and the bass are yes oh my god <laughs> yes yeah. 
This whole album just, it kind of, like the James Brown album that I picked for before, it had a similar influence in terms of, I would just put it on and listen over and over again, and the groove was just, like, there was something that's just like, oh, and if you're listening to it with friends who got it, which I did in both cases, we would just sit there and kind of laugh. Like, I'm seeing Steve as he's kind of like over there, like, oh, listen to this bass and the drum, the kick drum and the bass. Like, there's something about the groove that is like, they're, they're reaching some kind of magic that's like... yeah. You can tell that they like found something, and yeah. Anyway, D'Angelo Voodoo uh, recorded in '98 and '99, released in January of 2000. It's also I'm very usually the stuff I really love. I'm like 10 years late to. Like I'm like I come to it way late. This album is one I was like turning people onto in 2000, and so I'm a little what I got a little uh, I guess boasting boasting in me of like hey this is something I knew about when it came out. <laughs> uh, but anyway. Great album. Check it out if you haven't yet. Nice. Did you ever read um, Questlove's book? What was it called? Mo, Mo Betta Blues? I haven't. He has no. a whole section in there where he talks about that that moment in time where mm-hmm. the Soulquarians were kind of coming together and then specifically recording during that album and his relationship to D'Angelo. It's, it's really interesting, really intriguing, but that was... This album was the result of an incredible concentration of talent that happened to all be part of this kind of collective art community working together and they just made something really really beautiful. It's yeah. a, it's the like the story around the album is kind of as cool as yeah. the the album itself. And some of the those other albums you'll hear some of the same type of feel even though it's very I think it's definitely concentrated here on Voodoo but like on Common's album and one of Erica Badu's albums, and I think Lauren Hill was part of it too. And yeah, yeah, that I mean, it's like it's swing, swing. You know, like when you learn when you're when you're learning to play swing or mm-hmm. music like this, you know, you realize, oh, okay, I elongate that and of the beat, or I, I wait, yeah. it's later than just straight eighth notes. Yeah, and this just like bumps pushes, pushes it, it as far like, as you can go, just yeah. as far as you can go before the next downbeat. You know, right. but it's so so ooh. laid back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Absolutely. Sorry. All right. Um, I, I felt kind of bad picking this for my second because I, I feel like it's so predictable and I wanted to to really come in and like wow you all with some, some deep track, <laughs> deep albums. My third one I think will maybe catch you a little bit off guard, but I was trying to be Wait, on- let me guess. Is it rumors? 
Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> yes. Um, I wanted to be honest to Nailed the it. assignment, and this is my personal canon. And so uh, I'll try to get into it quick. It's a Dylan album. I had to I had to pick a Dylan album. I wanted to pick Highway 61 Revisited simply for the track, It's All Right, Ma, I'm Only Bleeding, because that was probably the first Dylan song that really like deeply, deeply affected me. But this album in its entirety, I feel like, is a little bit more honest than than Highway 61. I think it's his most authentic album. Um, so I'm, I'm picking Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan. And um, the, the interesting thing, so Dylan's a storyteller. He's obviously known for his, his lyrical prowess. And the thing about a storyteller is sometimes you don't know are is the story about themselves or are they just really good at telling the story and i think dylan is a a classic case of that but in this case blood on the tracks this album was very clearly deeply personal the backstory kind of famous backstory is this was he he had had a run of kind of mediocre albums in the 70s and then his marriage came to an end and he wrote this album as his marriage was coming to an end and so it's kind of a breakup album. The title itself, Blood on the Tracks, is essentially metaphor for a relationship coming to an end. And mm-hmm. it it's so it's such a perfect like three-word lyrical explanation of what the album is. This album really is it's devastating, it's beautiful, it is it's kind of like vulnerability in in a in a music musical form, and so it, I think it's his best album. He's got a band, a full band with him, and um, it, it just sounds I think the most honest version of Dylan. The one last backstory on it because I, it may come up when I have you play a track. He recorded most of it in New York and was ready to release it, and then he went home to Minnesota, where he's from, and he re-recorded like five tracks with some Minnesota session musicians. So there's some debate in the world of Dylan lovers as to which version is the more authentic version of Blood on the Tracks, the New York version or the Minnesota version. The Minnesota version is the one that officially got released. Uh, but anyway, the this one has like Tangled Up in Blue... Um, Shelter from the Storm. Do you remember which one I played? I played a track from this. Was it Shelter from the Storm? I can't. I, I think I, so. Yeah, okay. Maybe so. We won't play that one. Let's play. Um, I'll just pick two songs on this plate. Let's start with Tangled Up in Blue. Early one morning, the sun was shining. I was laying in bed. Wondering if she'd change it all if her hair was still red Her folks, they said our lives together sure was gonna be rough They never did like mama's homemade dress Papa's bankbook wasn't big enough And I was standing on the side of the road Rain falling on my shoes Heading out for the East Coast Lord knows I paid some dues Getting through Tangled up in blue She was married when we first met her, soon to be divorced. I 
Helped her out of the jam, I guess But I used a little too much force We drove that car as far as we could Abandoned it out west Split up on the docks that night But the green it was best And she turned around to look at me As I was walking away I heard her say over my shoulder We'll meet again someday on the Okay, you can go ahead and kill that. So that kind of sets it up. The the tangled <laughs> tangled up in blue is a perfect start. And then the next one I'm going to have you play and I'm going to have you do both versions if you can find them. I'll have you do the album version of Idiot Wind. This is this is just an incredible It's a devastating song. It sounds so angry and cruel and this is this shares the same album with Shelter from the Storm, which is also this kind of beautiful, conflicted response. But let's go with Idiot Wind, and um, I'm going to have you listen to maybe like two minutes of this, and then I'm going to see if you can find it's on. I know it's on YouTube, the the New York version of Idiot Wind, so you can kind of hear the contrast. So you can kill this one. So it's just, it's this slow build, this devastating response to a relationship that's gone bad and he's been deeply hurt and he can write a a song. But this this is his honest response. If you can find on YouTube, do do a search for the New York version of Idiot Wind. And it's a little bit more subtle. Um, a lot of the, I think, diehard Dylan fans like the, the New York versions better. This one's just him and an org, him on a guitar and then an organ accompaniment. But when he's, he, by the third verse of the official Idiot Win, he is, you can hear, 
all of his pain screaming into the chorus, um, idiot wind blowing every time you move your teeth. And this one is a little bit more subtle. I think it's probably a little more honest to the complexity of the relationship. So we'll just listen to a, a minute or so of this. So you can you can contrast for yourself. Someone's got it in for me. The planting star is in the press. Whoever it is, I wish they'd cut it out. But when they will, I can only guess. They say I shot a man named Gray. Took his wife to Italy. She inherited a million bucks. And when she died, it came to me. I can't help it if I'm lucky. People see me all the time, and they just can't remember how to act. Their minds are filled with big ideas, images, and distorted facts. And even you, yesterday, you had to ask me where it was at. I couldn't believe after all these years, you didn't know me any better than You can kill it. So, so I'm one of those uh, those hardcore Dylan nerds. I think the the New York sessions are, are better. They didn't make it to the official release, but this album is poetic. It is like I said, if you go through the whole thing, it really is this emotional ride through the complexity of relationships. He has this moment, my friend Dwayne, I was texting with him about this the other day. He loves this album. There's this moment in the song, You're a Big Girl Now, where he pauses like two minutes in and he just yells out, I, um, I can change this time, I promise, or something along those lines. And then there's this pause and it's just, it's absolutely devastating to hear it in his voice. Um, you know, I, I think some of the, the challenges anybody that's been in a been vulnerable in a relationship has has experienced. He put it all in. It's uh, it's dealing at the the peak of his powers, experiencing a, a little bit of a resurgence from his uh, '60s his '60s uh, singer songwriter dominance. What what year was this? What, Seventy, I think seventy five. Seventy five. Yeah, seventy five. Um. Did his wife record an album about this situation? <laughs> we want to hear her side of the story. <laughs> oh, man. It's good. Very good. Yeah, hers is called Blood on the Train. Or no. <laughs> I got hit by a train. I got hit Maybe. by a train, yeah. <laughs> and the train was Bob Dylan. No, something like uh, You're up, Steve. All right, all right. Um, so... I felt obliged to kind of build my personal can. I, I like the idea of three picks because you can kind of triangulate or cover a certain amount of area, mm -hmm. whereas two is you know would obviously be infinitely more challenging. Um, I guess more would be easier, but also sometimes going more gets tricky because then mm -hmm. you start you're like, well, wait, if I include that one, then I also got to yeah. include this or the whatever. Limitation can be helpful. So the way three broke down for me was it allowed me to say, okay, I've got popular music. 
that I that I love and that I listen to and that I that I grew up with. I've got jazz, which it allowed me to compartmentalize. I've got yeah, jazz, yeah. which I also love and was kind of really important to me, especially Gosh, as, dang it. as now a, I'm regretting my. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, Keep I'm going, going broader going. than maybe you guys would have wanted, and then we'll see what my third pick is. But uh, so for this pick, I gotta go. I gotta go jazz, and I it's it's not going to be Miles Davis, Porgy and Bess, which I've said many times. It's kind of like probably my number one Desert Island album of all time. But mm. um, I'm gonna go. But before you look up tracks, let me just tell you the name of the album, and then I'm going to give you some other instructions to look up the tracks. Because the album itself was a, an Italian compilation album on this series called I Grandi del Jazz. You know, so they would do these these spotlights, you know, on different, you know, Jerry Mulligan, Good luck with Miles that, Davis, whatever. <laughs> uh, and so the one I'm picking is J.J. Johnson. He's mm-hmm. if somebody's a, a, young, a tr- young trombonist getting into jazz. And, and you want to, the, the top name on the list for someone to start listening to and figuring out how to play jazz and how to play solos is J.J. Johnson. And so this, you know, this would have hit me in the early 80s when I was going, you know, in, in junior high, starting to play in the junior high jazz band, starting to get a little better and, and wanting to get into jazz. And at some point, a private teacher or just some workshop I went to, they said, yeah, J.J. Johnson. So when I went to the record store, I found this Italian compilation album, J.J. Uh, Johnson. And it's actually, yeah, it's like a, a combination. It, it is a compilation album, but that's the one I bought. So the two tracks, really, that, that are my favorites that I've play, you know, tr- attempted to play on my own at various times... Uh, one is called Me Too, uh, strangely enough. <laughs> oh, yes. The jazz. Yes, this is Bill Hader. Uh, that's uh, one of spicy jazz. <laughs> oh boy! Oh, Hopefully, we're not alienating our large Italian <laughs> contingency. Nothing actually, Italian. In yeah. that. <laughs> but uh, so the actual album that these two tracks I want to I want to just play parts of uh, are on an album called Really Living. By the J.J. Johnson, I think, Sextet or something. But the the first track is this tune, Me Too. And actually, I regret, I don't even know any of the other personnel, but I I could probably look it up, see if there's any other big names we know. I think Vinny Vedece's on it. Thank you. 
okay. You can, uh, I mean, so, uh, I mean, this was released in 59, but the, this whole Italian series was just like right around 81. I think that they started releasing these albums. And so it, the timing of those Italian albums was hitting right when I was like just getting into jazz and starting to buy recordings. Were they being recorded for them or were they curating just existing stuff? Oh, no, yeah, they were just grabbing from existing stuff. And I almost wonder if they were kind of bootleg, you know, I, right. don't, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, if they, if they just sort of were actually grabbing the, the vinyl from earlier and just sort of recording That's it across, awesome. I don't know. But, um, but yeah, the personnel, I mean, I don't, the, the, the tenor player is Bobby Jasper. I don't know. If that, yeah. Uh, th- there's a cornet player, Nat Adderley, who played with James Johnson a lot. That's, that's Cannonball. Cannonball's brother, yeah. And then Cedar Walton on piano. He's a pretty well-known pianist. Albert Heath on drums. Might be, might be. I um, love that stuff when that came in. That was. Um. Anyway. You gotta shorten your cord or something, Jordan. Test, test. Is it back? Yeah. So uh, the other track that I just love on this album that was on side A of this Italian compilation comes from the same album. It's Stardust, and I think it's still my favorite, at least instrumental version of the classic Stardust. Standard Stardust? Yes, it is. I love his solo, and I mean, one of the things he's known for in his solos is that uh, I mean, uh, on on the one hand, he's he's a great technical player, and he can play fast, fast licks that uh, at least sometimes you know keep up with some of the fast, faster sax and trumpet you know bebop players. But he also is just really musical, and he's a composer too. And you hear that coming through, you know, when you hear. I mean, this is true of a lot of the great jazz improvisers, but it's like. Um, there's always some kind of shape or composition to their improvised solos where you feel like they're they're developing it as they go. It has a kind of clear arc, and it really it feels satisfying rather than just somebody trying to play all the licks they know chorus after chorus or whatever. You know, it has more of a an interesting shape to it. But, uh, yeah, J.J. Like J. Johnson, I man. like it. I like that Italian series. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole, whole bunch of them. And you're, I had the experience of... My brother, younger brother, was uh, learning trombone and okay. taking private lessons. And the first person on his list that his teacher gave him to buy a record of or an album of was J.J. Johnson. So Yeah. Yep, so, he's, he's usually number one. He's the great. <laughs> he's great. All right, I'm kicking it over to Brandon. Okay. 
Final round. Chicago. Whoa. Final round. Chicago 17. That's the one. Yeah, it's got... Uh, actually, I'd probably go with 16. <laughs> 17 probably sold more, but 16... You're not going to go wrong. You're Chicago. not going to go wrong with either I one. I like Chicago. I had the, I had the greatest hits. Chicago's, Earlier, maybe. The, early but, yeah, the, the horn, horn section stuff. 25 or 624. Yeah. <laughs> Saturday in the park. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. I mean, Chicago 16, you got... Uh, what you're missing you got uh chain yeah hard to say i'm sorry slash getaway (laughs) favorite of church dances (laughs) love me tomorrow i'm gonna be doing the for my episode the an odyssey into the yacht rock adult contemporary contemporary. maybe maybe chicago will will uh make an appearance that's what i want to do for my next episode (laughs) okay well i i mentioned last episode that uh I'm on record per, per our text messages as saying that Marvin Gaye's What's Going On is now uh, officially the, the best album of, of all time, in my opinion. And I said that I sent that text before the Rolling Stone revised issue came out. I think they, they had him in there, but they turns out they agreed with me. They bumped him up, they bumped to, number him up one. to number one. That's right. But I don't feel right including him in this this list because I only listened to it for the first time two years ago. And, you know, every time I listen to it, I'm like, why why did it take me so long to get here? But I can't really say it's in in my DNA yet. Um, but the uh, this is the one that I would have said was the best album of all time. Before that, the, we're going with Abbey Road, The Beatles. The... Uh, the ones that invented the the album as an art form. Yeah, you can shake your head all you want, Jason, but you you can't uh, come up with someone that did it before. They had the <laughs> famous rivalry with the with the Beach Boys. I think it's when Rubber Soul came out. I think that's that's usually the one that people say that rather than just being the certain the collection of songs they wrote during this that six months, it's actually planned out as as an album brian, uh, brian wilson listens to it he's like whoa the beatles are really kicking this up a notch i gotta gotta do something different with the beach boys and so he starts working on pet sounds and then sergeant peppers comes out and then he has a mental breakdown mental breakdown <laughs> yeah. um so they've got they've got a ton of of great masterpiece albums uh but for me it's it's abbey road is the the, uh, it's their last album, and and the one where the, I think they achieved achieved everything they set out to. Um, every track on here has has something to offer, even the ones written by Ringo. And I think I think that just adds adds to their greatness that it wasn't just uh, it wasn't just Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. Sometimes sometimes they <laughs> feed it to Paxman. Is that his name? Paxton. 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 I'm the Paxman. Hey, I'm the Paxman. Sometimes they feed it to him. They're like, Ringo, hey, boys, I wrote a song too. Okay, Ringo. I mean, what the heck? We're the Beatles. Were people going to not buy it? <laughs> well, he's been asking us for the last five albums. Throw this is probably bone. our yeah. last one. Just let him do so, it. Here we are, Ringo. Ringo. Octopus's Garden. <laughs> I 
I'd like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade. He'd let us in, knows where we. You know they're they're on the top of the world. They can let Ringo include a song on it. Why not? Is that a kid's song? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> then we got album opens up with "Come Together." This one might be the closest to a, a single that uh, John has on this album, but really the the standout tracks on this this one is, are from George. Both of them. This is where he was uh, he was really rising. He'd been kind of shut out from assert the assert himself. Yeah, he'd been shut out from the the uh, album contributions for for a long time. I think he, they limited him to like one track per per album for the first few before this. But then uh, track two on this is something, and he knocks it out of the park on this. This is one of their best songs ever. solo too right there yeah yep um and i love the the string arrangements on this uh quite a few songs on on the album have strings um i think most of those are arranged by george martin and all recorded in one day one marathon session with the london symphony orchestra uh you got weird songs like maxwell silver hammer um a little bit of everything on here but the, the other ones I want to play, um, this one really stands out to me. It's unique for, for the Beatles. They did a, a lot of harmonies. They were known for being really good at harmonies. Uh, but, but this one, where it focuses more on like just the voices, this is because. Um, this one was written by, by John. And I think you can see a lot of Beach Boys influence in, in this song. Me on. 
Not one that's uh, probably ever heard any radio play unless they're playing a full album for some reason. But uh, even deep tracks like that showcase just what great singers they were, great harmonizers. That one, rightly so, Ringo was left off. <laughs> I don't know that that he was so great at uh, that kind of singing. <laughs> but but the other three, wow. And then after that, you've got uh, the uh, I don't know how many. How many? So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. The eight, eight-track suite that uh, comprises side B of Abbey Road, where they they're all like little bits of songs that are uh, stitched together in interesting ways. Um, I just want to do the the last three of them, starting out with Golden Slumbers, going into Carry That Weight, and the end. One stores away to get back homeward. One stores away to get back home. Sleep, pretty darling, do not cry, and I will sing a lullaby.
Paul's Boutique right here. And we got the dueling guitar solos. Actually, it might be all three of them. I think Paul played some, some of the leads too. Yeah, they got it all. They got it all on that Very album. Nice. That's a great beat. That's the B side, right? Yeah. That is a yeah a, a phenomenal side to an album. Yeah. Epic. And it's one of those ones that once it starts, like if if you listening in the car, you know, and you arrive home when it's still in the middle of carry that way, you're, you're like, sitting well, in the driveway. Yeah. Drive around <laughs> the block a few times. No, that's that's yeah. a perfect example of where an album can do a different thing than just a song yeah and i love how they've like during that song they hearken back to the earlier song of you never give me your money um you know reprising the the theme of that and how just in the those few songs um the the range of paul's voice is really explored he can do the you know his uh his version of the the R&B singer, the growly kind of stuff, but he can do the really, uh, the the mellow, I don't know, It's it's got it all in this album, start to finish, I love it. Very nice, very nice, glad you chose it, Brandon. All right, I'm up, my last pick, <clears throat> Home Stretch. So, home Stretch. As has been known, uh, and even some of our listeners has, have kidded me about it, I like to uh, bring out the Bonnie Prince Billy from time to time. <laughs> but I, might have made an appearance in this might podcast. Have made an well, there was the Quarantunes episode where I was just like, I'm just going to go with all three. So, uh, but but uh, Jason in Jason's episode last time, the what was it? Uh, Calm before the shelter in the storm. Shelter from the storm, which was interesting because that came before the storming of the Capitol. It did, right? Which was we didn't know how stormy it would get. No, really. we were trying to heal from 2020, and then 2021 came in with an actual storming. Yeah, oh, an boy. actual literal storming. I think that was just the end. I mean, that really 2020 ended on January 20th, <laughs> right? The inauguration. That was yes. like when all the QAnon people were like, "Oh, shoot, it didn't happen." Anyway. <laughs> During that episode, I had two. Uh, <laughs> I had two picks from Mount Erie. I didn't do any Bonnie Prince Bill, even though that was like these are you, the. You really restrained yourself. I restrained on that myself, episode. but but I decided I could come back here, <laughs> and this one I'm ch- picking my third. It's going to come from the Bonnie Prince Billy world of stuff. And in fact, I actually created an all music account and wrote a review for an album this week. While I was re- I was like, I'm going to write a review for this album. So I might just read my review. Hey. You good with that? Yeah. Yes. Okay. I'm going to do that. It's not too long. Self-published. Self-published <laughs> review. Music critic, Jordan. Here it is. All right. Let's see if this and is after adequately that, I'll pull dramatic. Up, I'll pull up a tweet that I wrote about. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a blog post I want to read, too. But I wrote it this week when I was thinking about this album. What, so what album is it? I'll get it queued up. It's called Days in the Wake by actually Palace Brothers, and it is on YouTube Music. So Bonnie Prince Billy, his name is Will Oldham. He famously has different monikers. 
Now he's been Bonnie Prince Billy since 1999, but before that, Palace Brothers was the name of one of his entities that he released an album on called Days in the Wake. This was 1994 it was released. I wasn't listening to it until 2003-ish. So here's, here's my all-music review of this. The year was 2002. I was 24 years old and newly married, as is common in the Mormon faith of my upbringing. <laughs> this is going to go too, No, it's got to be Whoa. not going to be too long. I had been immersed musically in 50s and 60s jazz, neo-soul, 90s hip-hop, funk, and soul. As wide as white can be in terms of where I came from, Provo, Utah, but I had been inadvertently turned off to anything that wasn't quote-unquote black music. Then I got introduced to Will Oldham, Bonnie Prince Billy, Mal- Palace Music et al., uh, maybe like a lot of other latecomers and uninitiated, I was first introduced through the Johnny Cash version of I See a Darkness, shown to me by my cousin's friend, John Burdick of Salt Lake City. I was intrigued instantly by something hard to name, maybe the colliding forces of Will's voice, weak and bold, wavering and committed. Over the course of the next year or so, my wife and I welcomed our first child, as young Mormon couples were commonly doing. <laughs> Uh, moved to L.A. and th- tried to make it. I think people that aren't Mormons have children, too, don't they? <laughs> but not when and they're some, sometimes when get they're married. Still, and <laughs> do they do that, no. though, when they're like oh. still living in their parents' basement? <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Point taken. Point taken. Uh, moved to L.A. and tried to make it as a screenwriter. I bought the three especially important albums over the course of that year. That's the year of 2003. Um, I See a Darkness, Lost Blues and Other Songs, and Days in the Wake. Uh, when I received Days in the Wake in the mail, the image on the album cover made me laugh out loud and maybe tear up a little. I had already been converted to this man's art through the previously mentioned two albums. The image looked like something someone had taken the worst of over 100 images taken to use for the album. The grotesqueness and beauty of humanity and of effort and of striving and of failing and it was so recognizable to a deep part of me. Confidently broken, seriously absurd, intentionally lost, accidentally wise. This artist, human, and their various strange and strikingly vulnerable songs spoke to me and for me in a way that sustained me through depression, addiction, artists, artistic hopes and failure, and existential black holes, and still does. There's my... Great review. My, my review. So one more thing yeah, I'll just say wow. is around the same time, I was, I was doing screenwriting and I was getting into this kind of filmmaking that was very DIY and also music that was very DIY kind of the mumblecore kind of genre of filmmaking that was hearkening to John Cassavetes and French New Wave people just picking up a camera and filming real stuff that was boring at times and and real so anyway that was the same time that I got this album Days in the Wake and if you see the image it's this kind of image of a silhouetted figure or something in front of a a boring background but something about it and the timing of it and everything spoke to me this this album is only 27 minutes long it's got um it's basically just him and his guitar which so much of that can be just kind of lame like a person and their guitar like i think in the 2000s and some of that kind of folk acoustic guy but something about him it's it it really worked for me but most of his other albums there's more music this is his most kind of isolated so we'll start with the first track, um, if you have wait is it called if you have no one. I should have, says, I should know it. You will miss me when I oh, burn. You will miss me when I burn. Right. 
to track four and you can hear there's he mixes kind of absurd and vulnerable in a way that's unique I send my hands to you I send my clothes to you I send my nose to you I send my trees to you I send my pleas to you Won't you send some back to me? Send your ways to me. Send your call to me. Send your days to me. Send it all to me. And when I'm high and square, when I would have you there, you will be. Let's go to track uh, seven, All is Grace. My head is bleeding. The blessed grace of waking up, of breathing in the sheets. And hello to you at the window, hello to you. Down the hill I'd like to take you to where I shot a little deer, my little Dear, I'd like to take you down there Rinsing out the iron cup To have a glass of wine To have an iron cup of wine Dear, to drink it down there A drunken pair Goodbye, despair One Last one Track 10, I am a cinematographer. <laughs> Only five more. Okay. We're going to listen to all 27 minutes. <laughs> all 27. It's a good thing it's a good album. That's right. That's right. I am a cinematographer. I am a cinematographer. Oh, I am a cinematographer. Oh, I am a cinematographer And I walked away from New York City And I walked away from everything that's good 
And I walked away from everything that I lean on only to find It's made of wood, made of wood And I was a big old barrel So that's it for, for Will Oldham, Palace Brothers, Bonnie Prince Billy I mean, there's several albums. I really had a hard time deciding which one. Like, the obvious one would have been I See a Darkness from 1991. Um, But this one I spent more time with and and kind of spoke to me in a different way during that time. So, I think, think, uh, you know, any... Some of our picks in one theme or... And and it'll maybe come into play with my pick in a, in a bit here, but is the idea that you know it something grows on you, or maybe something's because it's complex or new or whatever, it doesn't immediately grab you, but you spend more time with it for whatever reason, or you feel drawn to it. But and so that's I, I guess what I'm leading to is that you know the the D'Angelo, it's like I'm immediately there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like right. I'm just like. Oh, because musically it's so mm-hmm. engaging and interesting, and it just pulls me in immediately. Uh, Will Oldham, not so much, right? But I realize it's it's different because it's really just the the strumming and the chords are a vehicle for the lyrics, you know. I think right. in the meaning, and and they're kind of obscure and strange, and I, I, I it's something that I think I would have to, I need to live with a lot more to kind of really get into it and get the point and the spirit. It's less immediately engaging for right. me, but I, I but I, and Dylan in, in a way is kind of in that category too. Like, like I, I, I have a lot to explore with Dylan, and he's he's great. And whenever I do, I always it, it rewards you know digging in. But it's more about you know the poetry, you know. So I had, it's different. I'll just add to this. So like, um, I had been very much immersed in like yeah the music of like trying to. Listen to stuff that was cool musically, that I liked the beat or the feel. Yeah. But then there was this other stuff. I referenced it in my, my interview or my re- review that I wrote, this kind of some depression and other dark things I was going through. And there was this kind wow. of, I feel like there was a part of me that when I listened to this other stuff, it was like stuff that I was trying, like a part of me that was maybe weak or gross or like I didn't like, that I was listening to that. and I But I heard it like, like there was something about it that felt important to listen to and spend time. So basically Will Oldham in a way became like a weird sonic therapist where I could listen to this stuff, you know, that was like a shadowy part of me. And it was white music was the other thing that was weird. That was like, at the time I wasn't thinking of it that like that, but I looked back to it and it was like, I, what if I don't have to be ashamed of my own insecurities and my own as a person, yeah. as a human, as an artist. And so his albums were like, pushing that out so in the front for that's how i heard it that it became like a very empowering thing for me to like explore that and and so it was a very turning point like i still like hip-hop and d'angelo and stuff but that music was i was listening to it for a different reason it seemed like a lot of times right like i enjoyed it but i wasn't like emotionally connecting with it in the same way yeah like it was like this is cool that emotion but not the emotion of like i need to talk to my wife about this <laughs> or the emotion of like who do i really want to be as a person who really am i yeah am i this part person it, that i'm trying to yeah, show i was gonna or? say part of it and i can relate to a, a few of the things that you said and and even like when you read your review and the way you describe it like even 
you know, the need, the, like feeling the need to even kind of like differentiate between the whiteness of it or the blackness of a thing. Like, I think part of it for something like that is maybe part of the therapeutic value is that it almost helps like reconcile this conflict you have in like, or any of us have in our own identity. Like we all have the things that we're really proud to put out on the front. Mm-hmm. But then there's also this part of us that we're like, well, I hope nobody yeah. sees this or knows this about me. And we're all a con- a walking kind of conflict. You know, we mm-hmm. carry multiple things at a time. And I think good art um, helps us do that. I read a Vonnegut quote the other day about creativity. And he talks about how art ha- helps make suffering more bearable mm-hmm. and he, then he gives this challenge he's like make even if it's bad art write a lousy poem and give it to a friend but the art makes our our suffering more bearable as humans and i think like the the bonnie prince billy's or the bob dylan's or whoever for me like that's where a ton of their value is it certainly isn't in dylan's voice it's not beautiful by any means but somehow something he brings or i've had this you know similar experience like i see a darkness a super important Mm -hmm. album to me somehow it makes the the suffering of being human more bearable for just a minute and it's beautiful in that regard and it's true it's like it's not that their voice isn't good but it's in some ways it is the voice it's like but it's perfect for it yeah it's like the the crappiness of the voice allows you to like in in a certain way that's different but yeah it's definitely not for everyone it's not something that you're going to say to, it's it's uh it's very much a personal right. choice if it, if you come to it but yeah great great album great explanation I don't have near anything nearly that cool um for for this pick I'll I'm gonna go this one this one's gonna be where I zag where you expected me to zig um, <laughs> oh I'm gonna go 1977 it probably won't be a huge surprise but it this certainly isn't gonna be an album that shows up on any lists but this for me was an album. And maybe this was more like the the sonic element of it, where this was an album that somehow seemed to line up like rhythmically, just the vibration of music. This album seemed to really line up perfectly with the vibration of my like essence. Mm. And I don't know what it was. It's an Isley Brothers album. Oh, nice. um, and I I got turned on to them. I was reading an interview about Les Claypool. I was trying to be a, a cool guy bass player in, in high school, and Les Claypool was like my idol. And I read an interview with him, and he said that his favorite bass player at the time when he was younger was the bass player of the Isley Brothers. And I was perplexed by this because I just thought they were like this mediocre disco band. And I came across this album, the album Go For Your Guns, and it's a 1977, so it's late Isleys. I mean, they were doing, like, It's Your Thing in the 60s. And then they kind of um, they kind of evolved with funk and disco and dance into the 70s. But this album just really came together. Their bass player is Marvin Isley, and he's not, like, virtuosic. He's not like a, a Larry Graham or a Bootsy Collins, but he's really, really good and he understands rhythm. And he was this bass player. I could hear an Isley Brothers song 
and I could see all his bass patterns. Like I could see them clearly in my mind. I've probably ripped off more from him than any other bass player whenever I try to make whatever lousy stuff that I make. Um, but this is just a cool album. It's part of my musical DNA. I love it. It, uh, it just works for me. So we're going to play a couple tracks off of Go For Your Guns by the Isley Brothers, 1977. Um, this one, let's see. They have some cool stuff on here. I'm just going to pick two of the slower ones. The first one most people have probably heard, but in a different version because it got absolutely taken over by the hip-hop world. I want to bring it back because it is a beautiful song that is just a perfect exercise of subtlety. There's no instrument or vocal that tries to take over or dominate the song, and it all comes together in just this incredible rhythm. We're going to go Footsteps in the Dark by the Isley Brothers from Go For Your Guns. Ice Cube made it famous. We're bringing it back. Thundercat borrowed this, too, for uh, them changes. Some things are long <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> Some things were never said We were on one endless <laughs> But I had a wandering heart different than, the bass coming up? It's different than I, I thought it would sound But I get So it. this is I the rhythm it. of my heart Can <laughs> you guys hear it? <laughs> I can hear it <laughs> I don't even know what this is. What is this? This is Heim. <laughs> uh. Uh. I can see over Brandon's shoulder to his laptop, and I said, that doesn't look like the Isley Brothers, but maybe it's... <laughs> I'm going to think, just don't say maybe anything. Don't say anything. Yeah, don't say anything. Yeah. <laughs> that's like... Anyway. This bastard right here. <laughs> it just shows that you haven't done your homework with Heim like you really need to. I did too. I sent you a track by track explanation. I sat with the news album. I gave you running commentary track by track. Sounds like Wilson Phillips. That sounded like Wilson Phillips to me. Tell me how Heim is any different than Wilson Phillips. You tell me how they're any different. Well, here's my hot take. Heim, you tell me how they need to be any. Heim is the 2020 version of Wilson Wilson Phillips. Fine. That's fine with me. <laughs> this is the pride. I want footsteps in the dark. Oh. <laughs> but this is a great song. Here we go.
Is it, everything happens <laughs> subtly in it, and it all works together so perfectly. Yeah. Let's yeah, wow. just another minute longer. <laughs> What might happen? Something up ahead. Hey, should I keep the same direction or go back instead? I, I keep hearing footsteps, baby, in the dark. Oh, in the dark. Why I keep hearing footsteps? Oh, good. Very, very nice. Mm-hmm. I yeah. just sit with. I yeah, can sit with tasty. that all day, all day. <laughs> uh, next one from that album is uh, we're gonna go Voyage to Atlantis. Kind of a uh, a love song, but this is ju- it just Voyage to Atlantis. The perfect name. You're gonna hear um, Ernie Isley with his fuzz pedal cranked up, sustained, turned all the way. He can hold a note forever on it, and. Uh, this is such a cool I think it's a funk track they're a funk band this is a maybe unique in the world of funk but this is another one I could just sit with this song forever I'm ready to go on a voyage to Atlantis You can kill it. 
Again, I just sit with it all day. They're, I want to. I want to hear some more of that sustain. Yeah. So good. There's nothing fancy about what they do. It's seven guys just doing their job really, really well. This <laughs> is. Uh, we're gonna hear turning his uh, turning his amp up to eleven. Sustain. Yeah. <laughs> Go out and grab a bite. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. That was a Tasty. good intro because that first guitar note he hits, it's like, oh man, it's just like he just holds it. He, he holds. He holds it forever. Uh, Go listen to uh, that lady on the three plus three album. That's the one Kendrick Lamar borrowed uh, recently on I. I think I, I think Ernie Isley actually played on that one, but uh, pretty distinct sound. But again, like none of them are particularly virtuosic in in how they do it. They just they show up, they do their job, but they work really well together. And it's music that I can just sit with. Like that's comfort food for me. Solid, mm-hmm. solid. Is there another track we're listening to on that? No, or no, no. I uh, I took plenty of time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, is this it? This wrap it. it up. This is it. Wrap your, it up. Your glasses are sweaty. Oh up, my gosh! I mean, fogging up, pick. fogging up. Um, well, I uh, I gave a little I gave a little uh, foreshadowing for this. The idea that I was I I ended up making my three picks kind of represent the three different parts of my musical life or identity, I guess. So Can we get some experimental electronic music now? You know, I'm going in an acoustic direction, but what? it is but it is in the Who uh, is this guy? Uh, for the time, it's in the more experimental art music realm. So on the uh, it connects, I feel like well, it, it it's allowed to be here because hey, it's one of my picks, so that's the way it goes. Uh but also it's like if if you ask someone like what's the most rock and roll piece of quote unquote classical music from the 20th century this would be it uh and also it's it's really up there in its own realm with like the Beatles Abbey Road or whatever i mean so it's it's a it's perhaps an obvious pick but it has a personal connection to me so it's going to be Igor Stravinsky, The Rite of Spring. But let me mm, let me nice. coach you, Brandon, yeah. and have you look for the Zubin Meta, M-E-H-T-A, conducting the New York Philharmonic. And probably what you can find is an album that just has him on the cover, and you can see one of his hands like he's conducting. And uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll mention a track, but it's... There's so much. It, it's such a famous piece of music. Its premiere in Paris was infamous because there were, you know the crowd started rioting and they were so shocked by it. And the dancers, it's it's a ballet, and so the dancers couldn't even hear the music coming up from the or. Yep, that's it from the orchestra pit. Uh, Nijinsky, the uh, choreographer, was apparently like yelling, you know, to the dancers, the counts, you know, one, two, three, so they could still keep with it. But it, 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 but you know, within the next year, it was it was revived as a just an instrumental, a purely musical performance, and just hailed as a masterpiece. And it's just become part of the repertoire of most you know orchestras. You know, it's not uncommon to see it programmed in a, in any given year. But okay, so I'm almost there. So 
for me, I mean, I've, I don't know if we can keep increasing the shout outs I keep giving to my friend and colleague, Mike Hicks, but it's like <laughs> he, uh, you know, when I was a freshman at BYU studying composition, he was my first composition teacher. And I, you know, would go ask him questions sometimes about the class and just about music in general. And uh, somehow, anecdotally, he had mentioned that he listened to the Rite of Spring on his mission. And so because as a sort of devotee, I was like, okay, note to self, got to listen to Rite of Spring. You know, I was just (laughs) finishing my freshman year, getting ready to go on an LDS mission. And so I landed my LDS mission. First mission president, only thing we can listen to is Janice Cap Perry, Deseret Book, you know, release (laughs) stuff, whatever, Mormon pop. Uh, so I'm like, ah, oh, geez, oh well, whatever. Then we, I, I have a, I had a e- different even the mission. tabernacle choir doesn't fit the bill. It's got to be Janice Cab. Yeah, well, <laughs> te- you might mo- you might feel some. Uh, the Motab would have. What about that one guy's what, name? What, Le- Lex what, Day, what how do you say his name? Lex Day as yeah, yeah, Lex. Yeah, yeah Lex could you listen to him? Yeah, sure, I bet. <laughs> so. Uh, second year of my mission in Canada, we we have a new mission president, you know, as sometimes happens, and he his rules were different, and he said, you can listen to classical music, and he just kind of left it really open, and so I immediately uh, put in an order. I don't even think I bought it myself. I think I put so in... Some a- of the missionaries that had taken humanities part a you're like president you don't know what you're doing <laughs> you're opening a can of worms you don't want them listening it's to Stravinsky it's not just J.S. Bach out there president <laughs> so I, I ended up with some cassettes that I just wore the heck out of the second year of my mission uh, which included some more you know more uh, well traditional tuneful stuff like Puccini arias and whatnot, but they also included this cassette of Zubin Mehta conducting the New York Phil in the Rite of Spring, and I just listened to the heck out of it. And for me, that it's an album because it's really the listening of it. You know, usually when you think of studying classical music, it's maybe co- connected to studying the score, learning to play an instrument, that kind of thing. But for me, my first real love of this piece and this music was just listening to it over and over. And... Uh, it's it's almost like a needle drop thing. You could just pick any track, but what I was what I'm thinking is the last section of of part one. So the ballet divides into two big parts, and then within that, there's all these smaller parts. So the the one I'm thinking of, if you, I think you can find this in the track listing, is uh, "Dance of the Earth." It should be the last part of the Adoration of the Earth. Okay, and I, by the way, I'm glad you picked the uh, the Zubin Zubin Meta. Version because no, I mean he's he's really innovative in what he's what he's doing here. It's not it's not the traditional version of the Rite of Spring like like we've come to know. Uh oh, I feel like I'm being set up. Uh, this. <laughs> I mean the instrumentations. I don't know what he put on the violins in this version, but it's pretty groundbreaking. <laughs> Iceburn Collective. Iceburn. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> right, well, play your real version. That's like, is that Iceburn? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I did not know that they 
They did their own take on it. I'm going to have to add that to my repertoire. Okay, Dance of the Earth? Yeah, I think so. Okay, so can you say what year this is? Uh, it's nineteen fourteen. Uh, I yeah, think somewhere around there. Uh, World War One was going. Uh, yeah, this is. If, if I miss that, could we please edit that out? Let me just. Uh, <laughs> it's let's Steve see has so much more pride than the rest of us. We just say whatever <laughs> I we know. think. It's for some reason I'm. He's the got only one with standards. <laughs> thirteen. Ah, crap. Uh, premiere is 1913. Uh, so, can, can we listen to the very last track, also of the whole, the whole thing, or part two? So, if you can find the, the one, says, one, sacrificial dance. Yeah. And so, do you guys know this? Okay. Do you guys know the story of the Rite of Spring? No. I mean, it's basically based on Russian folklore. It's, you know, a tri- tribal culture. A tribe of elders comes together and to celebrate the coming of the spring and to, to you know, have a good year and good crop, they, they give a human sacrifice and they select a, a virgin to dance herself to death. And so it's, it's a pretty, it's kind of an extreme topic already. They, you can go on YouTube and find the... the um, uh, Joffrey, pa- the Joffrey Ballet has done a more modern reconstruction of the original performance with the original choreography, the original costumes. And it, to me, it connects in my own superficial, you know, knowledge experience with like Native American, what, what I would think of as like, you know, Native American costumes and kind of dancing and, and movements and stuff. So it's, it's absolutely not, you know, traditional ballet. And so, you know, a bunch of Parisians going to the ballet expecting to see, you know, uh, young women in tutus with tight hair and everything. I mean, they had these much more raw costumes and, and strange movements and dance movements and that kind of thing, in addition to the really aggressive music. But the music itself, I mean, it's just, it's it's aggressive at many points. It's layered, you know, just all these layers that keep piling on top of each other. And uh, it just, it's just kind of hits you at a gut level. It's like level. the original Midsommar. Mm. Yeah. Or, or yeah, Wicker that, Man yeah. with Nick Cage, if you want. <laughs> right, right, right. So it, it shocked, it shocked <laughs> the kind of the world in terms of the cultural, yeah. musical, ballet yeah, world you, at the time. You can, re- it, you can read a lot about it. It's very infamous and well-known. But yeah, can we hear a bit of the end here? The Yeah, where you were. Crank it, man. Crank it. Crank it. 
And then maybe I don't know if you want to kind of forward ahead to like the last two minutes or so of the of the whole piece. If So the urgency wow. of that would have uh, would actually fit in with uh, with fear of a black planet if you want to bring it full circle. And then the other the question I have is: Did your uh, mission companions share the same zeal for this that you did? <laughs> maybe I bust. Maybe maybe I found I some. I think this uh, was the headphones. I was going to say maybe I found some contraband headphones, <laughs> or uh, or or maybe you just had to deal with it. I I it's funny. I don't. I guess I must have had headphones. I don't really have a strong memory of like what headphones I had, but or how I would have listened to this. I think I had that little, you know, one of those little tape recorder things to yeah. to do, you know, practice out of the, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, whatever yeah, it was called. Had to, yeah. But anyway, not, not to critique right Stravinsky. I mean, I'm sure he knew what he was doing, but to me, the the ending itself seems a little anticlimactic. Well, I I probably could have handpicked some other other tidbits, you know, that were were really built in terms of your picks. But this is like the last track of a a huge yeah a huge thing that seems like more energetic at other parts. Is that is it is the last track? Like, is that a death scene? Is that where the the dancer finally dances himself to death? Yeah, yeah. The the sort of jaggedness and the space in between and everything. I think is kind of the the dancer on her last gasp. You know, finally having these movements and then finally dying. So there is. I think there's a sense that the climax happens earlier in the movement, and then this is kind of the final resolution that's not it's not quite as big and exciting as earlier other parts but but yeah it's uh there you go it's so intense so and it's It's, really it it kind of if you think of stravinsky as kind of like a rock band of one he really he was known to compose at the piano and there's anecdotal stories of his landlady who lived below him and could hear him pounding away at the piano that it was actually a lot of this stuff was just intuitively him at the piano trying different things out banging away and you can hear that kind of repetition you know what i mean like there's this thing and then he does another thing and then he goes back to the other thing and then some Sometimes he shortens it, lengthens it, that kind of a thing. And um, I think there's a real rock and roll vibe to it. 
but it's also well, the kind of thing I've like never you heard were saying. This one performed yeah. live. I need to. Yeah, get, it's check great. It out you know, next time Utah Symphony does it. Uh, on a, yeah, the Utah Symphony's done it several times. Uh, the, the only time I've ever heard it live is the BYU Phil, and they they crushed it. They did wow. a great job with it. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, that was uh, for for the hundred year anniversary back in two thousand thirteen. Oh, they cool. they did it. And they they did a great job. So this was fun, Steve. I have yeah. I have my biggest surprise. And here is the the thing that surprised me the most: no Neil Young album from Brandon. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm totally surprised. By <laughs> well, that, yeah. we're talking albums, right? Yeah, De- yeah. decade. I thought about you don't doing, think he, I thought you about don't doing so decade. I, what I heard is that I Brandon mean, doesn't think Neil Young makes good albums. No. <laughs> But as far as like an album creator, you can't be as prolific as Neil Young is, and also be demanding about an album as an entity. <laughs> that's that, and that's why I went with the James Brown. So you you would have had to go with like decade or something. And no, I mean for personally, he's got he's got some great albums. Harvest Moon that I love. Yeah, Harvest Moon, After the Gold Rush, On the Beach, um, Comes a Time. Lots mm-hmm. of great ones, but. As far as like song for song greatness, even though I listen to Neil Young a lot more than I do Jeff Buckley right now, I think that album as as a work of art is is higher it's above higher any up. any yeah. one of Neil Young's. Yeah. Fair enough. Even though wow. as an artist, yeah. You know. And we gotta, and we, we'll have plenty of other chances we to got talk about good, Neil Young. We got a good uh, kind of cross section of different stuff. Mostly it was more popular, but we had some classical, some jazz. We had some. Some 70s, we had some 90s, we had... And limited to three 80s. for each yeah. of us, there's going to be some What some was the most there. recent album anybody picked? Was it D'Angelo, 2000? So you, actually, you had two. Yeah. You had D'Angelo and Palace Brothers. But Palace Brothers was 94. So you had a 90s, I had a 90s, and then you had 2000. But most everything, and I guess that's yeah. probably a testament to... Long, longevity probably being required uh, not required but i think that's how we probably all looked at it a little bit like for canon it's yeah. something that's been with us for a long time long enough to recognize right. okay this still matters yeah there's a few mm-hmm. albums i've been spending a lot of time with in the last five years and i thought about including something newer but then I, it just yeah. came back to the other the so older that stuff. would be like a fun next question would be like um, make your bets. Like if you were going to buy stock in one album that you think might become part of your canon <laughs> that isn't yet like from the last five years, what would it be? Mm-hmm. Are we talking oh. actual stock? Or are we talking options? Um, <laughs> are we short selling here? Yeah. It, it would be the GameStop. It would be the GameStop model. <laughs> there, I've got a Reddit thread right now that you're going to want to follow on this. Um, but yeah, that would be a, that would be a fun one. Like a recent a good, album that we question. think will end up being. Ha- have everybody make their metaphoric bet on a recent album that could potentially become part of their canon. We don't have to do it right now, but. <laughs> oh, we don't. Okay, for I a future just episode, put it out there. Huh? I know. Heim, I was about to blurt something out, but no. I'm going to hold back. Heim. I'm going to hold back. My favorite your, album of 2020. Pick? It's my favorite album of 2020. The the most recent one that I was considering was. Radioheads in rainbows. Yeah. Mm. yeah. See, that's a little Even still bit... still isn't all that recent. I feel like that's a little bit of a cheat because they their body of work suggests, like, you can... Yeah. It, it's it's a trustworthy entry. Like, you know what that's you're going to get. You know the, the standard that it's, gonna, that it's already at. 
So mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Well, let's wrap well, up this episode for yeah. our, for the two listeners that are still with us. <laughs> Thanks for coming along our the journey <laughs> through our own personal none, canons. None of us picked any female musicians. Yeah, oh, I noticed that sorry. too. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm trying to think of who I had on the periphery. It's just not a part of us, I guess. Oh, well. <laughs> when it comes down to it. I mean, so, you know, can we can work it in if we've got ten picks, but top ten albums. You know, Kate Bush would have been a contender for me. You know, her "Never Forever" is like one of my Desert Island albums, and and or the Kick Inside, both of those and others. But but and I don't know. There would be. There might be others. Yeah. But yeah, it's a good, good yeah, question. Joni Mitchell's Blue is mm-hmm. definitely up there for me. Yeah. But I, I can't say I've listened to the whole album like back to back as many times as these other ones. Yeah. yeah. Same. Carol King Tapestry. I didn't listen to that until about five years ago, but I love that one. We have the record and I put that on all the time. But, but yeah, same. I thought about that. I thought, I bet there won't be any female <laughs> artists chosen i had had the same the same hunch but i I mean it's not terribly surprising either i mean i think we were i I figured we would all have a a healthy dose of stuff that we gravitated to early like during kind of formidable years of finding music and we were going to find a voice that was probably similar to ours in some capacity so yeah all right, who's rap- okay. who's uh, who's uh, yeah. wrapping it up? Thanks, gentlemen. Well, uh, <laughs> am I saying the closing prayer? Yeah, yeah. yeah man. <laughs> Benediction. I, I I just attempted to wrap it up, but but I, what else can I say? Uh, let me read from my journal from uh, 1984. <laughs> I think you give the remaining listener a challenge. H Tuttle, I <laughs> oh, want to yeah. know. <laughs> H Tuttle, I want to know what your personal music canon is. Give me your three albums that make up your uh, canon. Michael, Michael Hicks, anymore. who I always <laughs> always seems to get a shout out if you're listening. <laughs> uh, give us your own, your top three personal canon albums. You know, no, it is, it's a other, fun exercise. I think it's fun. I think it's worth it's uh, worth anybody doing. Yeah, yeah it is, and uh, it's it's maybe the podcast version of what floats around on on the uh, social media sometimes, right? Post. 10 mm-hmm. albums or whatever. I can yeah. never make it to 10. I've been tagged a few times with that I'm with right, film right. or with albums, and I always I make it to about five. And I, I like, never make it to one. Oh, I politely geez. decline. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I mostly <laughs> decline, but if, the few times I've tried it, I can never make it. So it's part of the reason it takes why. takes a lot of commitment to do yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. It really does. But uh, yeah, we hope you enjoyed it. Reach out to uh, what, what's the email, Brandon? Uh, contact at letthemusicbeyourmaster.com. Awesome. Or, of course, the website uh, has options for comments on the episodes, and we've had some fun banter on there. So go ahead, look us up, reach out. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Take us out, Brandon.